Should we be talking about money on the first date? Welcome to Common Sense on the Prairie, a podcast by First National Wealth Management in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We are a regional best provider of wealth management services, including investment management and financial planning, as well as personal trust, institutional trust, and retirement plan services. This podcast is our chance to share some of our passions and help you make your money work for you. In today's episode, we're going to go next level with our money conversation and talk about some deep financial stuff. And to help us do that, I've solicited the help of a therapist, but not just any therapist, a financial therapist. Derek Hagan, who I first met in 2015, is a financial therapist and financial life planner, writer, and speaker. He's the founder of Money Health Solutions based outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota, serving clients nationwide. Derek supports financial health, behavior change, money mindfulness, and happiness by helping clients understand and change their beliefs and behaviors around money and design a life that brings meaning. He writes about the psychology of money on the Money Health newsletter using simple drawings. Derek holds several professional designations, including the Certified Financial Planner, Certified Financial Therapist, Certified Financial Behavior Specialist, and Chartered Financial Analyst designations. And last but not least, Derek and I are actually former coworkers, working together in an RIA firm in Minneapolis. Derek, if you would have told me back then we'd be doing this someday, my first question would have been, what the hell's a podcast? Thanks for joining me and welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. So good to be here and so good to see you again. We actually not only worked together, but lived very near each other on the same walking trail. Yeah, that's right. We live like blocks from each other, didn't we? Right. Yeah. (laughs) It's a small world. All right. Before we dive in, let's take care of that disclaimer. Any comments, insights, or strategies discussed on this podcast are intended to be general in nature and therefore may not be suitable for you and your situation, whatever that may be. Before acting on anything we discuss, please consult with your attorney, CPA, and your, your financial advisor. All right, Derek, first things first. What exactly is financial therapy? Good question. Very good question because it's a very new profession. So most people haven't heard of it. And one of the more common answers I get when I say I'm a financial therapist is I've needed something like this for years. I didn't know it was a thing though. Sure. So basically financial therapy is helping people change how they behave around money, but also how they think, how they feel, how they communicate around money. So it's addressing kind of opening up the curtain and addressing the interior side of things like the emotions and behaviors that underlie money. Sure. So that's effectively what it is in a nutshell. Sure. And so so it is like therapy. Yes. Okay. Here's why it's such a new profession. So as you may know, money is a number one cause of stress for people. It's a top cause of divorce, especially early on in marriages. But if you went to your financial planner and you started crying because it's emotional and maybe you're not on the same page, that financial planner is going to say, you know, there's some tissues out in the lobby. Why don't yeah. you come back when you got it together? You go to your therapist. They're very well addressed on the emotional side, but they don't know anything about money. So there was this big gaping hole in the middle for people who I need to talk about money and feelings at the same time. So it's only about 10 years old that this profession existed. Okay. Now I was exaggerating both of those. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. Financial planners and therapists aren't that bad, but right. the idea is Financial therapy addresses the intersection of money and emotions. Sure. Very interesting. So how is this different than behavioral finance or is it different? Behavioral finance is even a a new field of study. Mm -hmm. And the kind of high level definition of behavioral finance is, well, it's the intersection of personal finance and psychology. So this is your behaviors and your money, behavioral finance. Yep. 
But that's kind of what I just described financial therapy as. That's also the intersection of psychology and money. So what would be the difference? Well, you got to go a little deeper for that. So behavioral finance is personal finance mixed with cognitive psychology. So cognitions is how we think. This is how everybody thinks about money. Mm-hmm. So we all fall victim to a number of biases and rules of thumb that we use. So for example, framing effect. This is an idea in behavioral finance where it's the same information, but depending on how we hear it, we'll make different decisions. For example, if you hear something has a 5% chance of death, you know, this pill or this treatment has a 5% mortality rate, and this pill over here has a 95% chance of success, that's the exact same thing, but right. we hear that differently. So that's just one example. So it applies to everybody. Sure. Now, financial therapy is personal finance mixed with clinical psychology. So now we're not talking about all humans. We're talking about you specifically. Hmm. So how was money when you were growing up? What did you learn about money? How do you behave and talk? Behavioral finance is kind of like the nature of things and financial therapy is kind of like the nurture of things. Oh, so interesting. Uh, This is fascinating stuff. So I've heard you talk before about interior finance versus exterior finance. Um, I think that's a really interesting conversation. Can you walk me through that concept? Yeah. And you're going to learn that these are all very much related. Sure. So if you think of a Venn diagram, I draw for a living. So I'm always thinking in terms of Venn diagrams. Mm -hmm. But if you draw the one circle that says personal finance, another circle that says psychology, and that intersection is financial therapy, you can think of that personal finance circle as exterior finance. Okay. So exterior meaning outside of us. So these are the optimal strategies. This is the the best way to do things. Basically, this is mathematics. It's spreadsheets and calculators. Mm. And it's very helpful. You need this stuff. But this is what most of your finance-based professions have been dealing in for years. It's how do I get the best investment portfolio? What's the best budgeting system? What's the best way to save on taxes? Very important. But all the exterior finance information in the world is useless if you're unable or unwilling to get yourself to do it. So that's where interior finance comes in. So that's inside of you. How do you get yourself motivated to make those changes? So for example, I can use a non-money example. Exterior, let's use health. And there's people who smoke cigarettes that don't want to. Yep. They want to quit. Giving them exterior knowledge, saying, hey, have you seen these latest studies that say your quality of life is going to be not as good if you smoke? They're going to say, yep, I already know that. Information's not enough. I have a problem on the interior side implementing that stuff. Yeah. So that's kind of the the difference between those two. Makes sense. What are money scripts? Money scripts are rules about money that we all have. And when we think about interior finance, that's what we're talking about. So we all have different money scripts. Now, a script, you can think of this in two different ways. A script is like something an actor or an actress reads. Mm -hmm. They have a character and they have to read this script. They can't vary from it. Or if you're tech savvy, there's something called a computer script, which is a computer program. It's just lines of code. You start the program and it reads the lines of code. So much the same way, a money script, it's like a tape recorder. I don't know, maybe people don't know what these are anymore. (laughs) There used to be these tape recorders with a button and you hit play and then the tape would turn and, and play. So a money script is kind of like a play button. Something happens with money and it's an automatic behavior that we partake in. It could be anything, any rule that you've heard of. Money doesn't grow on trees or you should always say for a rainy day or I deserve money or I don't deserve money or any kind of belief that you can have is a money script. So they're not necessarily good or bad. 
they're helpful and unhelpful. Mm. And they change over time. They're contextual. So a money script or a series of money scripts that you've developed in one you know, time in your life might have worked very well, but then the situation changes. You move to a different part of the country or you retire or you start your own job or, or your own company. Now the rules change. But if you're operating on the same kind of set of scripts that you were operating before, now you can run into, into troubles. Sure. I wonder if those scripts and those changes have to do with like when people come into a big liquidity event, they didn't have much before, they won the lottery or something like that. And all of a sudden they have new money scripts and those can be equally as unhelpful as the ones they had before. And you're thinking about that exactly right. So there's, you know, we, we could talk, we could do a whole episode on money scripts, but yeah. we'll, I'll just digress here for a little bit. So there's infinite number of money scripts that you can have, but they tend to fall into four categories. Uh, and those categories are money avoidance. So these are a set of beliefs that have some element of money is bad, or I don't deserve money. Good people don't care about money. Rich people are bad. That kind of belief. Yeah. Second category is money worship. So money worship category. This is the belief that more money is going to make my life better. Mm. So more money will make me happy or all my problems will be solved if I had a little bit more money. Those are money worship scripts, the belief that more money will help me out. There's money status scripts, and those are pursuing money just like money worship. You know, more money will make our life better. But whereas money worship scripts are internal based, I think I will be happier. Money status scripts is seeking more money, more power, more possessions for outward appearances, hmm. you know, for status purposes. And then the fourth one is money vigilance. Of the four, you could call this the best of the four categories. This is, I would be really nervous if I didn't have savings or you should never spend money on yourself or, you know, that kind of thing. It's extravagant to overspend on things. But even taken to an extreme, those can be bad. So if you are familiar with the character of Ebenezer Scrooge, yeah. he was full of these money vigilance money scripts yep. to the point where he had this wealth that he didn't use. He didn't spend it because he had these psychological beliefs that I can't spend money, even though he had plenty of money. Right. So there's four categories of these money scripts. They're developed in mostly in childhood as we're seeing how the world works. How does money work in our system that we grew up in? And we develop different rules about them. So I routinely get feedback on two of my podcast episodes. Uh, the first was keeping up with the Joneses. And the second is the money and marriage episode. Those episodes came to mind when you and I first started talking about this episode, because I knew you have some really interesting insights that may help people understand more about why we do the things that we do with money. So let's start with the keeping up with the Joneses idea. Derek, why do we feel the need to impress our neighbors? There's a couple of different ways that we could approach this. So I call it like leading and following. This keeping up with the Joneses effect could be because we're leading. So we want to be the Joneses that everybody else is trying to keep up with. And so this would be people that had those, a large majority of their money scripts would be money status. Okay. So we want things for status purposes. And that could be pretty common to find people, especially out in Silicon Valley, they're driving Lamborghinis, they got big houses or big apartments that they own. And it's because they had to prove something to somebody. I wanted to prove to that college colleague that I was smarter than him, or my mom told me I was never going to be able to be successful. I'll show you. That's a money script. So showing people, look, look how smart I am, or look how good I am, or look how wealthy I am. Mm -hmm. um, often that is feeding some kind of insecurity deeper down. Not, not always, but often that's the case. Yeah. 
So you could be the leader and try to be the Joneses, but then there's also the, the keeping up with the Joneses, the follower effect here. So I'm watching my neighbor and my neighbor always talks about his great European vacations that he goes on. I'm perfectly happy going on camping trips, but pretty soon I start to feel like I want to go to Europe mm. because I feel this there's an envy component to this. Yeah. Uh, so it could be when they get a new addition. Now I have the smallest house in the neighborhood. They get a new car and now I have the oldest car in the neighborhood. It's a almost an inadequacy effect around that. Sure. So there, there's plenty of reasons for it, but they tend to follow that too. Either I want to be the Joneses, there's a heavy status component there, or feel the need to follow the Joneses because there's an envy component there. Now, it's common, money scripts, interior finance, keeping up with the Joneses, none of this stuff is in conscious awareness. This is not something where we get a little notebook out and we write down, neighbor Bob just bought a new vacation, <laughs> therefore I need a new vacation. Right. This is not how it works. Totally flies under conscious awareness. And as humans, we're not very good at knowing why we did something, but we're very good at justifying why we did something. So if I go on that European vacation, even though I'm very happy with camping trips, that's because some internal piece outside of my conscious awareness drove me to that decision. But if you asked me, hey, why are you going to Europe? I will spin some story about life is short or I want to get out there before I'm too old to do the hikes or, you know, we're justifying creatures. Yeah. So all that stuff flies underneath conscious awareness. Keeping up with the Joneses is kind of a symptom of not understanding our values. And what I mean by that is if we haven't done the work to figure out what's important to us, what do we want out of life, then we're very liable to kind of default to either society or culture or our neighbors or social media defaulting to somebody else's version of what our values should be. Uh, again, we don't do that on purpose. I don't know what my values are. Therefore, I'm going to use your values. But we need meaning. We A world without meaning is a, a dark place in our mind. So we yeah. need to latch on to something. And if we don't latch on to our own values, which does require a little bit of work, we latch on to any values. And then we live our life through those values. And then there's that disconnect between you know, living our life through these values that aren't really ours and what our true values are that we haven't really discovered. That gap in there causes distress and, and pain. Sure. So with social media, it feels like we now have more neighbors than, uh, than ever. And the opportunity for social comparisons are simply everywhere. The social media made this comparison problem worse. You know, there, there's our our third episode is the yeah. whole social media episode. <laughs> right. Uh, social media is a dark place for a lot of reasons. In behavioral finance and psychology, there's an idea called confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. Confirmation bias is when we make up our mind about things and then we easily find evidence that supports that. And it's very hard for us to find evidence that you know disputes that. It's a really big deal. That's how we pick our friends. That's how we pick our jobs. Because you know, we don't surround ourselves with people who disagree with us. We only surround ourselves with people who agree with us because right. those are the people that are our friends. Yep. So we end up with social media the way that their business model works. It's advertising based. And we end up really deep in these confirmation bias bubbles, filter bubbles or uh, echo chambers, if you will. So you, literally, if all you see in social media is people that agree exactly the same thing you do and you never see any other point of view unless it's being made fun of by somebody in your clan, that's furthering the, the divide that we've been seeing in our country. But that's, that's not around about money. Way back in the day, 
the Joneses were just literally your neighbors. Yep. And you got to see what they were doing. And I used those examples already. Then we got radio and radio gave us advertisements and then television. Now we were watching TV. There were still advertisements telling us you should want this. You should want that. But then there's also these shows that were like uh, feeding our, our dream for power and wealth. So lifestyles of the rich and famous, for example, was a TV program that was on when I was a kid. Hmm. And then it got worse. Now you've got Kardashians and you've got the Hiltons and you've got whole TV shows that are made around extravagant lifestyles. So that's just what has happened with television. That feeds that Jones's effect as well, that kind of envy effect. Now enter social media, especially in the early days. You Let's use Instagram as an example, but this could apply to any of the programs. Instagram is about posting pictures. Now, even if my followers on Instagram are just my friends and family, people that I know, or the people that I follow, I guess both ways this could cut. I'm going to go on to my app and I'm going to see all their pictures, their amazing restaurants that they went to. They had some great dates. They went on awesome vacations, but I didn't do those things. Mm. So now it's, it's just a jacked up version. Instead of seeing my one neighbor on this side and my one neighbor on that side, I'm seeing all my 100 and 200 and 300 and 500 friends with their awesome houses and their awesome vacations and their awesome every toys that they have. Doesn't take a lot to like take a step back and zoom up to the forest instead of the trees and see that well, they're not showing you their whole life. They're showing you only the best you know, quarter or the best tenth of their life. But that's all I see. And I'm comparing it to 100% of my life. So there's a huge mismatch there. Yeah. But then I now have this feeling to post the best parts, a strategically placed picture that keeps out the ugly neighbor that has a dirty yard, but I can show you the little pond yeah. that's by my house. Uh, great. Now I got a bunch of likes. Oh, now that feels good. And now I'm, that's contributing to the phone addiction that we all have. But now the other people see that. So you can sense a compounding effect. So I'm only seeing the best of your life. So then I now feel the need to post pictures that, that get myself likes because I don't want to admit that I'm not as good as you. But then you see that. And now we're just kind of competing for who can pretend we have the best life. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Effectively. Yeah. And that gets to vacations and it gets to purchases and new things. And I always call social media the greatest hits collection. So you got to be, <laughs> right. yeah, people aren't posting about the fight they just have with their spouse or their credit card bill that's um, come due again. Yeah. They just, they just post the best stuff. Right. So I asked a question jokingly in the opener, but I'd actually like to hear your answer. Should we be talking about money on the first date? Very unsatisfying answer. Yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> Hell of a first so me, date. <laughs> so let me explain. So I think, well, let me just answer both ways. If you are on a first date and you don't know who this person is and you're just trying to play the field and see if this is somebody that you want to go on a second date with, I think it's perfectly fine to not have a, a money conversation. You don't want to just scare people away. Money is taboo in this culture. But the minute that you know this is serious, uh, then I think it's very appropriate to have a money conversation. So don't do it, maybe not on a first date, but I would change that to once you know it's serious, earlier the better to have that money conversation. So don't necessarily bring your personal balance sheet with you on the first date, but be prepared to talk about it just in case. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's, that takes a lot of work, though. That, that's, that's a really good point. Be prepared to talk about it. That's yep. difficult because just, just think of how, how you feel. Uh, to anybody listening, if I said, you know, imagine we're at a restaurant and the appetizers just came out and I said, 
how much debt do you have? <laughs> you know, where did that hit you? That probably hit you somewhere deep. Yep. And even if you don't even have any, right. it's still like, what are you asking me this for? Of course, there's easier and better ways to ask the question, but we tend to clam up when we when we talk about money. Yeah. So what does that mean? I, I think of, I guess, maybe putting your words in your mouth, but the uh, easy follow-up question might be, so what does it mean to talk about money? And I think a good framework is just to understand, well, what is what was money like for you growing up? So I'll give you an example. Maybe there's a first date and one person grew up in a household where dad made all the financial decisions and managed all the money. The other person grew up in a situation where mom and dad shared the responsibility 100%. If you don't know that, or if you don't talk about that, and you're going through your life, you're trying to pay your bills, you're trying to see who's going to pay for dinner, and I'm coming to the table where I'm believing that the man in this relationship has to do the money stuff. And you're coming from the relationship thinking, uh, you in this case is my date, not, yeah. not necessarily you. <laughs> right. But the other person's coming to the table saying, no, we have to talk about this and discuss it before making any decisions. I'm going to start to say, why are you so nosy? Why do you need to know all this stuff? Just mind your business. This is my job. You're going to say, why are you so secretive about this? I'm just asking you a simple question. I just want to understand what's going on. So that's just one example of how just simply asking, who made the financial decisions in your in your life? Yep. Here's a, I ask these of every single client that I work with, but just start with, what did you learn about money from your mom or mother figure when you were growing up? What did you learn about money from your father figure when you were growing up? If you didn't have a mom or a dad, what did you learn about money from not having a dad or not having a mom? What did you learn about rich people growing up? And keep it at that because rich is a very subjective term mm, yep. and let them answer what that means. Uh, or what did you learn about poor people growing up? You know, just those four questions, and then that'll that'll fill up your whole date yeah, with those questions. And yeah. you're probably going to be each answering it. But it's very fascinating to hear people's answers to, you know, what did you learn about rich people growing up and hearing kind of what the what the perspective is. Yeah, we've touched on this a little bit, but why is talking about money taboo? Because we don't like being judged. Hmm. The minute we open our mouths up about money, we open ourselves up to be judged. And that's judging cuts all ways. It's not just I'm afraid to be judged for not having enough or not making enough or not having the right things. I could be judged for having too much. I could be judged for all kinds of things. It doesn't matter who's judging us. It feels bad, especially if we haven't gained the confidence from doing that values work to be judged by anybody. So if, uh, how much do you make? If I say how much I make, no matter the number, that's, that's in a vacuum. There's people below that. They're going to say, oh, well, look at this rich jerk <laughs> pretending like, uh, you know, everything's this guy is just a rich guy mm -hmm. uh, or people who have more are going to say, oh, that's cute. I remember when I made that. <laughs> yeah. that's a, and those are just two examples. Right. It's not even that direct. It could just be little shrugs or little, you know, we're very sensitive to judgments and money is the area that touches every area of our life, every healthcare. Uh, careers, uh, where we're going to live, what we're going to drive. Money is the thing that touches all those areas. There's very few life decisions that don't have a monetary component, and there's very few financial decisions that don't impact your life somehow. So because money is everywhere, that's the common denominator of getting judged across the whole spectrum. Sure. So money scares us because even if, and this is how it works, we have a negativity bias where we pay a lot more attention to negative things. So even if we're having a conversation and 
you say 15 nice things, but then there was that 16th one was that judgment. That's the one I'm going to remember. Yep. And so I can, I can eliminate that by not even talking about money. So we touched on this a little bit before too, but it's no secret that this year has been really tough on marriages. Um, but historically, one of the biggest contributors to divorce can be traced back to money issues. What is it about money that makes marriages so combustible? We're starting to kind of mix in all the different things that we've talked about here, but but we all have different sets of beliefs or we have all got a different combination of money scripts and that money history is different for everybody. And why are those two different? This is, I think, important to to address. You can have siblings that grew up in the exact same environment. Let's use a, it could be any environment, but let's use a poverty situation. Two exact siblings in the exact same situation. So they've got the same money history, but they could have very different sets of money scripts. So child one might leave and say, I'm going to do everything possible to not get into that situation again. So they're going to like jump to the total opposite side. Child two might come out of that and say, well, this is what I know. So this is how I should live my life. So money history could be the same or is the same in both situations, even though they have a total different set of money scripts. So that's why those two things are different. But yep. How was money when you were growing up? What was money's role? Who made the decisions? How did you think about money? Did you learn any explicit lessons about money? Did somebody sit down with a checkbook and show you how to manage a checkbook? Did you have a piggy bank or three piggy banks, you know, the spend, save, uh, give, I think, mm-hmm. uh, method or whatever? Or did you not learn any explicit lessons? These are ways that we can uncover kind of more of what you believe. And if you know what I believe and I know what you believe, now we can start to get onto the same page. Yeah. But if we avoid it because of the taboo, then we grab a Amex bill that comes and pretty soon we're having a fight. It was like touching that electric fence. And how, why are we fighting? Mm-hmm. I don't know. We just opened up a bill yep. and all of a sudden, zap. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think the avoidance of the topic and kind of figuring out, you know, we see it a lot too with comfort levels of debt. You know, one yep. w- one member of the household may be more comfortable using debt uh, and the other one may have been taught that that should be avoided at all costs. And so that can create conflict. And that's just one of many examples, but that's one that mm-hmm. we see regularly as well. So our past is our past, but now when we start to have kids, we have the opportunity to create healthy money habits with them. So I guess what I really want to know, Derek, is how do we not screw up our kids? <laughs> Stop lying to them. Okay. Uh, let me explain what that means. So uh, I particularly hate the word afford. So I, gr- I grew up, relatively poor. So when I was growing up, I can't afford it literally meant I didn't have the money. Mm -hmm. I can't afford gas. I can't afford my rent this month. I literally don't have the money. But once you're outside of poverty, you can afford it. So the kid rocks up to you in the store, you're at, you know, Target or some other big box store. Hey, mom, can we get this? No, 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 we can't afford that. Mm. You can afford that. So that's the wrong message to spend. So now the kids are going to say, well, are we poor? Why can't we afford it? Mm. And then, you know, children are naturally curious. So that's why it's why, and then why, and then why, and yeah, then why. Right. And pretty soon you're not going to be able to answer because you started off with an untruth. We can't afford it. Mm. Now, it might not be in your budget. That's a different idea. Mm-hmm. And this gets down to having productive conversations about money in your household, looping in the kids when they're old enough, or I shouldn't say when you're old enough. Looping in the kids with money talks as early as possible. Teaching them how money works is good. Now, there's a fine line. There's an idea in financial therapy called financial enmeshment. This is when you bring your kids in too early to make grown-up decisions. Mm, okay. So don't don't cross that line. So 
this is when kids get used as go between, mm. right? So kid says, mom, can I, I need to sign up for baseball. He said, well, go, go talk to your dad. And so you go talk to dad, dad, I need to sign up for baseball. And dad says, well, if your mom didn't waste all that money on shoes, you'd be able to afford to be in baseball. <laughs> yeah, sure. You're like, so now <laughs> all of a sudden, wait a second, what is, what is that all about? Yeah. So that's a grown up conversation. Mom and dad can have that conversation about why can't we afford baseball or should we try to find room in our budget for baseball without the kid present? But how to use money, how to find out what we value, what's important to our family. Those conversations can happen as early as they're able to understand us. Sure. So then when the kid runs up to us, hey, I want this toy, we can say, well, you know, this is not something that our family values. We, ins- we instead like to use our money in this way. You know, remember we talked about that last week? How do you think? And then ask the, this is kind of graduate level, yeah. but you can ask your kids <laughs> to answer the question for you. You know, remember we had that conversation about values. How do you think this fits into our, our family value system? Yeah. Now that's probably, they got to be double digits probably for yeah. that conversation but hard for a three-year-old yeah (laughs) (laughs) right so stop stop saying we can't afford it okay i think that's the number one trick Um, but that loops into the bigger idea of don't let money be taboo sure oh this has been fantastic i could talk with you about this stuff all day uh but how can people learn more about you derek yeah you can head over to moneyhealthsolutions.com slash prairie i've got everything there on that one website um, you can sign up for my newsletter there. That's the newsletter where I'm drawing pictures and explaining the psychology of money topics to people. You can refresh yourself about what we talked about here today. You can download some ebooks. You can do all kinds of things. So moneyhealthsolutions.com slash prairie. Perfect. That's awesome. Derek, thanks so much for joining me today. This is this this was fantastic. Thank you very much. All right, you got a great thing going. Keep it up. Thank you. For those of you listening out there, and that group keeps growing, please continue to subscribe and tell your friends. We'll talk with you again soon.